Chapter 7 of Stolen Souls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winterout. Stolen Souls by William LeCue. Chapter 7 The Sylph of the Terror. Ah, you in England here are always debonair while we in Charlois are always triste, always. The dark-eyed, handsome girl sighed, lying lazily back among the cushions of the boat, allowing the rudder lines to hang so loosely that our course became somewhat erratic. I had been spending one of the hot afternoons of last July gossiping and drinking tea on the riverside lawn of a friend's house at Datchet, and now at sunset had taken for a row this pretty Belgian whom my hostess had introduced as Cecile Demage. "'Is this your first visit to London?' I asked, noticing she spoke English fluently, but with a pleasing accent. "'Oh, no,' she replied, laughing. "'I have been here already two times. I like your country so very much.' "'And you come here for pleasure, just for a little holiday?' "'Yes,' she answered, lifting her long lashes for an instant. "'Of course, I travel for—for for pleasure always.' Fixing my eyes upon her steadily— I remained silent, pulling long, slow strokes. The evening was calm and delightful, but the blood-red afterglow no longer reflected on the placid Thames, for already the purple haze was gathering. "'You know many Belgians in London, I suppose?' I said at last. "'Oh, dear, no,' she answered with a rippling laugh, toying with one of her gloves that lay on the cushion beside her. "'True, I know some of the people at our legation, but I come abroad to visit the English, not the Belgians.' "'And you have never visited West Hill, Sydenham, mademoiselle?' I asked, resting upon the oar suddenly and looking straight into her dark, wide-open eyes. She started, but next second recovered her self-possession. "'No, not to my knowledge.' "'And have you never met Fedor Nikiforovich? Has he never addressed you by your proper name, Sonia Ostroff?' The color left her face instantly, as she started up with a look of abject terror in her eyes. "'Messieurs of the secret police!' she gasped hoarsely, clenching her hands. "'Dieu! Did I am betrayed?' "'No,' I answered calmly. "'I am aware that Mademoiselle is an active member of the Naradnaya Vaya, "'but I, too, am a friend of the cause.' "'And I added a word which signifies indivisibility, "'and is the recognized password of the circle of desperate Russian revolutionists "'to which she belonged. "'It gave her confidence, and she sank back upon the cushions,' questioning me how I had recognized her. "'I heard you were masquerading in London,' I said, "'and among other members of the circle who are here at the present moment "'are young Paul Chartkov, Sergeyus Karamazov, and Ivan Petrovich.' "'But, but who are you, monsieur, "'that you should know so much about the Neradnaya Volya? "'When we were introduced, I failed to catch your name distinctly.' "'My name is Andrew Verney, and I am an English journalist.' "'Andrew Verney, ah, of course. I have heard of you many times. You were the English newspaper correspondent who, while living at Warsaw, became one of us, and wrote articles to your journal advocating the emancipation of our country and in the inviability of the individual and of his rights as a man. You assisted us in bringing our case vividly before the English people, and in raising money to carry on the propaganda. But, alas, the iron hand of the Minister of the Interior fell upon you. "'Yes,' I said, laughing. 
I was expelled with a cancelled passport and an intimation from the press bureau at Petersburg that whatever I wrote in future would not be allowed to enter Russia. Our boat was drifting, so I bent again to the oars and rowed back to the lawn of our hostess. The beautiful girl, who, lolling back upon the saddlebags, commenced to chatter in French about mutual friends in Warsaw, in Moscow, and in Petersburg, was none other than Sonya Ostroff, known to every nihilist in and out of Russia as the Sylph of the Terror. Her slim figure, her childish face, her delicate complexion and charming dimples made her appear little more than a girl, yet I knew well how her bold, daring schemes had caused the Tsar Alexander to tremble. The daughter of a wealthy widow, moving in the best society in Petersburg, she had become imbued with convictions that had induced her to join the nihilists. From that moment, she had become one of their most active members, and on the death of her mother, devoted all the money she inherited to the cause. Many were the remarkable stories I had heard of the manner in which she had arranged attempts upon the lives of the Tsar and his ministers, how on one occasion, with extraordinary courage, she had taken the life of a police spy with her own hand, and how cleverly she always managed to elude the vigilance of the ubiquitous agents of the third section of the Ministry of the Interior. Yet, as she laughed lightly, and pulled the rudder line sharply, bringing us up to the steps before our hostess's house, few would have suspected Cecile Demage, the chic, flippant daughter of the Belgian mine-owner, to be the same person as Sonia Ostroff, the renowned sylph of the terror, who spent greater part of her time in hiding from the police in the underground cellar of a presumably disused house near the Katerinsky in Petersburg. Half an hour later, we were sitting opposite each other at dinner, where she shone brilliantly as a conversationalist. Several persons were present who had met her in society in Brussels, but none suspected the truth. I alone held her secret. When later that night we bade each other farewell at Waterloo Station, she managed to whisper, I shall be at Fedor's on Thursday night at nine. Meet me there. Do not fail. Very well, I replied, and allowed her well-gloved hand to rest in mine for a moment. She bade me au revoir, entered a cab, and was driven away. As I walked into Fedor Nikiforovich's handsomely furnished drawing-room at Sydenham to keep my appointment, my host rose to greet me. He was tall, thin, and slightly bent by age. In Warsaw I had known him as an active revolutionist, and indeed the men who were with him, Chartkov, Petrovich, and Karamazov, were a trio of daring fellows, who alone and unaided had committed many startling outrages. Several others were in the room, and among them I noticed two ladies, Masha Karolin and Vera Ertenev, whom I had frequently met at secret meetings of the circle at Warsaw. Sonya told me you were coming, Fedor said gaily. This is the final council. The attempt will be made tomorrow, he added in a whisper. The attempt? What do you mean? I asked. It will all be explained in due course, he said, turning away to greet another member who at that moment arrived. In a few moments, Sonya, in a striking evening toilette, and wearing a magnificent diamond necklet, entered smiling, being greeted enthusiastically on every hand. We exchanged a few words, then when everyone was seated in silent expectancy, the sylph of the terror took up a position on the tiger skin stretched before the hearth. The door having been closed, and precautions taken so that there would be no eavesdroppers at the windows that overlooked the flower garden at the rear, in clear, distinct tones, she addressed the assemblage in Russian as fellow councillors of the Narodnaya Volya. 
she referred to the manifesto of the Naradno Provo, and said, Autocracy, after receiving its most vivid expression and impersonation in the reign of the present Tsar, has with irrefutable clearness proved its impotence to create such an order of things as should secure our country the fullest and most regular development of all her spiritual and material forces. Then with the fire of enthusiasm burning in her dark flashing eyes, she referred to the thousands of political prisoners, many of them their own relatives and friends, who had been banished without trial to Siberia, to rot in the dreaded silver mines of Nershinsk, or die of fever in the filthy etops of the great post-road. Desperate cases require desperate remedies, she continued, glancing around her small audience. Hundreds of our innocent comrades are at this moment being arrested in Warsaw, and hurried off to the Transbaikal without trial, merely because Gorko desires to curry favor with his imperial master. Shame, they cried with one accord. He must die, ejaculated Fedor. Shall we allow our brothers and our sisters to be snatched from us without raising a hand to save them? she asked excitedly. No. Long enough have we been idle. Tomorrow here in London we shall strike such a blow for the liberty of Russia that the world will be convulsed. All is ready, sister, Fedor observed. The arrangements for escape are perfect. By midnight tomorrow we shall have separated, and not even the bloodhounds of the third section will be able to trace us. Then let us see the shell, she said. Walking over to a bookcase, he touched the spring, and part of one of the rows of books flew open, disclosing a secret cupboard behind. The backs of the books were imitations, concealing a spacious niche from which the nihilist drew forth a thick volume, about seven inches long by five wide, bound in black cloth. It was an imitation of a popular edition of Charles Lamb's works. The bomb was in the form of a book. Sonia, into whose delicate hands he gave it, examined it critically with a grim smile of satisfaction, then placed it carefully upon a little Moorish coffee-stool at her side. It is excellently made, excites no suspicions, and reflects the greatest credit upon you, Fedor. You are indeed a genius, she said, laughing. Then seriously she asked, is everyone present prepared to sacrifice his or her life in this attempt? We are, they answered, with one accord. I think, then, that we are all agreed as to the necessity of this action, as well as to the manner the coup shall be accomplished. In order that each one's memory shall be refreshed, I will briefly repeat the arrangements. Tomorrow night, punctually at eight o'clock, the man condemned to die will visit the Lyceum Theatre, entering by the private door in Burley Street. The person using the shell must stand at the strand corner of that street, and the blow must be delivered just as the carriage turns from the strand, so that in the crowd in the latter thoroughfare escape may be easy. It must be distinctly remembered, however, that the personage to be removed will occupy the second carriage, not the first. Will he be alone? asked the dark-bearded ruffianly fellow I knew as Sergius Karamazov. Yes, we have taken due precautions. Come. Let us decide who shall deliver the blow. And while Fedor wrote a word on a piece of paper, and, folding it, placed it with eleven other similar pieces in a Dresden bowl, Sonya Ostrov continued to discuss where they should next meet after the coup. At last it was arranged upon her suggestion that they should all assemble at the house of Karamazov in Warsaw at 9 p.m. on the 21st, thus allowing a fortnight in which to get back to Poland. The scraps of paper were shuffled, and everyone drew, including myself, 
for I had taken the oath to the revolutionary section of the Narodnaya Volya, and being present, was therefore compelled to share the risk. Judge my joy, however, on opening mine and finding it a blank. The person to whom the dangerous task fell made no sign. Therefore all were unaware who would make the attempt. The strictest secrecy is always preserved in a nihilist circle, so that the members are never aware of the identity of the person who commits an outrage. But the business of the secret council was over, the cunningly concealed bomb was removed to a place where it was not likely to be accidentally knocked down, and the remainder of the evening passed in pleasant conversation. I had become fascinated by Sonya's beauty, and when I found myself sitting alone with her in a corner of the room where we could not be overheard, I whispered into her ear words of love and tenderness. She, on her part, seemed to have no aversion to a mild flirtation, and admitted frankly that she had pleasant recollections of the sunset hour upon the Thames. "'Who is the man condemned to death?' I asked presently. "'What? Are you unaware?' she exclaimed in surprise. "'Why, the Tsarevich!' "'The Tsarevich? And you intend to murder him?' She shrugged her shoulders, replying, "'We have followed him here, because he is not so closely guarded as in Petersburg. If we succeed, there will be no heir apparent, for the Grand Duke George is already dying in the Caucasus, and the days of the autocrat Alexander are numbered. He will die sooner than the world imagines.' The flippant manner in which he spoke of death appalled me. Nevertheless, when I bade her farewell, I was deeply in love with her, and promised to be in the vicinity of the scene of the tragedy on the morrow. I knew all the details of this desperate plot to kill the Russian heir apparent, then on a brief visit to London with his fiancée, yet I dared not inform the police, for the terrible vengeance of the circle was always swift and always fatal. Helpless to avert the calamity, I passed a long day in breathless anxiety, dreading the fatal moment when the blow would be struck. By some strange intuition, I felt that my every action was watched by emissaries of the nihilists, who feared treachery on my part, for as a journalist I was personally acquainted with a number of officers at Scotland Yard. Hour by hour I strove to devise some plan by which I might prevent the foul murder that was about to be perpetrated, but alas, no solution of the problem presented itself. The plans had been laid with such care and forethought that undoubtedly the Tsarevich would fall a victim, and Russia would be plunged into mourning. At length twilight deepened into night, and as I walked from Charing Cross down the noisy, bustling strand, the gas lamps were already lit, and the queues were forming outside the theaters. On passing the steps leading to Exeter Hall, I was startled by a hand being laid upon my arm, and found beside me an elderly woman, poorly clad, wearing a faded and battered bonnet, with a black threadbare shawl wrapped around her. "'You have not failed, then?' she exclaimed in low tones, that in an instant I recognized. "'You, Sonya, and in this disguise?' I cried. "'Hush, or we may be overheard,' she said quickly. "'The choice fell upon me, but, but I have had a fainting fit, caused by over-excitement, and I cannot trust myself.' And she caused me to walk back and turn up Exeter Street, a short and practically deserted thoroughfare close by. Think, are not the risks too great, I urged? Why not abandon this attempt? I have sworn to make it, she answered determinedly. And the others, where are they? An alarm has been raised. Baranoff, the chief of the third section, suspects, and is in London in search of us. We have all left England with the exception of Karamazov, who remains to witness the attempt and make a report to the council and you will risk your life and liberty by endeavoring to strike this murderous blow 
of which you do not feel yourself physically capable? For my sake, Sonya, defer the attempt until another occasion. I cannot, even though you love me. And her slim fingers tightened upon mine. Then a second later, she clasped her hands to her forehead, and reeling would have fallen had I not supported her. Ha! Oh, how very foolish I am, she said a few minutes later. Forgive me. Then as she steadied herself and strolled slowly by my side, she suddenly asked earnestly, Do you really love me, Andrew? I do, I answered fervently. Then dare you, dare you for my sake, Andrew, dare you throw the bomb, she answered hoarsely. Her suggestion startled me. I halted amazed. I, I, I could not, I really could not, I stammered. Ah, it is as I thought, you do not love me she said reproachfully, but it is time I took up my position at the next corner. If I die, it will be because you refused your assistance. Farewell. Before I could detain her, she had turned into the strand and was lost among the bustling crowd. Hurrying, I overtook her before she gained the corner of Burley Street. I have changed my mind, Sonya, I said. Give it to me. I will act in your stead. Fly to a place of safety, and I will meet you in Warsaw on the day appointed. From beneath her shawl, she carefully handed me the bomb. It was heavy, weighing fully eight pounds. Slipping it into the capacious pocket of the covert coat I was wearing, I stood at the street corner. Sonya refused to leave, declaring that she would remain to witness the death of the son of the autocrat. Trembling and breathless, I stood dreading the fatal moment, knowing that my pocket contained sufficient picric acid to wreck the whole street. Seconds seemed hours. As soon as you have thrown it, fly for your life, urged Sonya. Then we remained silent in watchful readiness. Suddenly, almost before we were aware of it, one of the Marlborough House carriages dashed around the corner past us and drew up before the small door at the rear of the Lyceum. It was an exciting moment. Without hesitation, I took out the deadly missile, and none too soon indeed, for a second later the Zarevich's carriage followed, and just as it passed, I hurled it with all my force against the wheels. Turning, I dashed away across to the opposite side of the strand and was there overtaken a few seconds later by Sonya and Karamazov. It has not exploded, they panted in one breath. No, I said. How do you account for it? The tube of acid is not broken, Karamazov said. I predicted failure when I saw it. But let us go. Sooner or later a horse will kick it or a wheel will pass over it and then poof. Farewell, I said and we hurriedly separated, each going in a different direction, both of my companions momentarily expecting to hear a terrific report. But they were disappointed, for a quarter of an hour later I dropped Nikiforovich's bomb into the Thames from Waterloo Bridge, and next day an urchin was rewarded with a shilling for bringing to my chambers a copy of Lamb's works. It was sadly soiled and damaged, but bore on its flyleaf my name and address. He said he had found it in the gutter in Burley Street. Events have occurred rapidly since that memorable evening. The Tsarevich, unaware of how near he was to a swift and terrible death, is now Nicholas II of Russia, while the pretty Sonia Ostrov, still in ignorance of how her plot was thwarted, is at the present moment toiling in the gloomy depths of the Savinsky mine in eastern Siberia. End of chapter 7 Recording by Alan Winteroud Audio.boomcoach.com